G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Well, as you know, we talk a lot on Vision about building strong marriages and building resilient and fabulous families. But from time to time, we like to create the opportunity to talk about what happens if things go pear-shaped. Often it's beyond our own control. There are a lot of surprises that we can face in our lives. And many of those may leave us wondering about rights and responsibilities. So we're back today talking about family law. Our talkback line is open. You might have your own experience. You might have a scenario to run by our special guest. Our talkback lines are open on 1-800-316-316. Steve Potts is back with us, family lawyer, accredited specialist in family law and also Managing Director of Newman and Turner Lawyers in Brisbane. So let's a special welcome to you, Steve. Great to to see you again. Yes, good to be back, Neil. Steve, let's start with sort of a scenario, um, uh, one that uh, may be familiar to listeners. A marriage disintegrates into a separation. He goes his way, she goes her way. Uh, Caught in the middle are the children, and sometimes they're very young children, sometimes they're teenagers. And, of course, uh, one of the common questions, as I understand it, that lawyers get asked is, uh, you know, how old do the children have to be before they can choose where they live? There's a major uh, battle going on for the hearts and minds of children. Uh, What are your thoughts? You get asked that question regularly. Yeah, absolutely. I probably get it almost every day that someone comes in and sees me for the first time because it strikes at the core of what's most important to them about the time that they'll be able to spend with their children. And um, it's often asked by parents whose kids are starting to approach their teenage years. Maybe they are teenagers, maybe they're you know, 9 or 10, 11, and they're trying to work out how will the court weigh up decisions about their kids and how much involvement will their children have in that decision how much of a say do they have in where they might spend time with mum and dad and, and how do they how do they balance that? How do they negotiate that with the other parent who also wants to maintain a very involved um, and regular connection with their child? It's funny when you start to uh, frame things the way you have just done because there is a sense, isn't there? I wonder uh, whether this is typical and you can perhaps shed some light. Uh, when parents say, Uh, I wonder what the court will do. I wonder what the court will say about the children, rather than uh, with this sort of understanding that the children are right there and they are the ones who are likely to suffer, perhaps into their later years. I imagine uh, that there is a certain selfishness that comes when there is a a breakdown of a marriage. You've got he or she, uh, and if that question arises, I wonder what the court will do. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of... uh, Maybe that's not the highest priority question that ought to be asked. That's probably true. I think probably where it boils down, though, is that not not many people have gone through separation before. It's a very new experience for them. And you and I, when we go to something new, when we approach something new for the first time, 
one of the first questions we want to ask are, what are the rules of the game here? What are the parameters that I've got to work within? How am I going to go through this? Because I don't have a frame of reference for it. Most people haven't been through it, but they're aware that there are courts, there are laws that regulate it. So the first thing that they want to get to the bottom of is, well, hang on a minute, where do I stand in relation to those laws? So it might not be the most child-focused approach, but if you think of it from the perspective of someone who's never been through it before and is looking for something to to grab onto, something solid while everything else is crumbling around them, then the first question of what, is a, what, what might a court say is is fairly natural. But you're quite right, it's, it's not really the best question to ask. The best question to ask is what's going to be in the best interests of our children as we go through this. Uh, when you're dealing uh, with people who are going through breakdown of their marriage and perhaps eventual divorce, and uh, and let me say, your practice, you deal with everyone. Uh, when we talk uh, face-to-face in the studio as we are today, oftentimes we're talking to people who are coming from a Christian uh, scenario. And, yep. uh, and divorce is not uncommon uh, when it comes to uh, families that are Christian. Uh, maybe sometimes it's one member who's a Christian, one who's not, sometimes another who's antagonistic towards mm. the things of God. Uh, there is a sense in which uh, perhaps as a Christian, knowing your rights uh, may for some produce some sort of conflict about what the Bible might teach about what a Christian ought to do. But there's a, a certain sense in which you don't necessarily have to be someone who is walked over as a Christian in a scenario of a marriage breakdown. Does this sort of thing come up in conversation? Yes, it does. And um, like you say, a lot of the clients that I see come from very broad backgrounds. Some are Christians, some are non-Christians, some from other religious backgrounds, whomever comes through the door brings with them their own perspectives. But one of the issues that I often notice when I act for Christians is that there is a there is a real wrestling of, okay, what are my legal rights? And then how do I resolve or reconcile that with what I know about God, what I've read in the Bible, what I feel is the right way to act in this particular scenario? And I have to say, my experience has been that Christians tend to tend to go through it in a more gracious way than non-Christians. And I think that's um, in part because of their knowledge that the the law in Australia is the law in Australia, but they're not ultimately accountable to that. They're ultimately accountable to God. They've got to abide by the laws of Australia, but they're ultimately accountable to God. So I think that there's a, a sense there where they want to make sure they're right before him, even if it's at their own detriment in the Australian legal system. I think that's part of it. But I also think that uh, some of it comes from parents who say, well, I could assert a position here or I could take a more hardline approach, but what's that really going to achieve for my children? I think there's sometimes there's that little bit of extra perspective that might not necessarily be seen there because um, parents can make idols of their children in, in the same way that anybody can make an idol of their job or of another religion or whatever it might be. But if their idol is their children, they tend to fight about it even more. That's less common, in my experience as a family lawyer, it's less common among Christians. Not unheard of, but less common. Interestingly, uh, just reflecting on something uh, someone in the office was sharing with me a little earlier when they heard that we were talking about this sort of thing, they said, uh, oh, Prince Harry uh, had some counselling uh, mm-hmm. some years ago because he was having difficulty dealing with the loss of his mother. But of course, what was in the lead up with you know Princess Diana and Prince Charles uh, and their marriage breakdown obviously had effect on mm. on their children, and there was no dispute as to where the boys would go in that family. Obviously, mm. they stay with 
dad, uh, you know, the the Prince of Wales. Uh, But what it illustrates, of course, is that children are affected by the breakdown of a marriage, uh, sometimes in very serious uh, psychological ways that stay with them right through until their adult years. And uh, just this story, and many listeners will be familiar with it, that Prince Harry was seeking counselling because uh, all the things he went through as a child and with his parents and their divorce and uh, all of the things that resulted out of that Mm. stayed with him and still battling with those as an adult. So if you get it wrong in those early years for the children, they've got to carry those things through their lives. Absolutely, and that feeds directly back into one of those first questions you asked me, which was um, how old are children when they decide or or can they decide? Well, that, that in effect, one of the really big risks of asking children for their views, and it's not unheard of, um, it's part of the whole process, but one of the really big risks of asking children for their views is that it directly draws them into the dispute between their parents because if they sense that their parents are in conflict and they adopt the position of one of their parents, by default that puts them in conflict with their other parent and that can create a whole lot of extra trauma that needs to be worked through and that can be seen then in a whole lot of other factors. What happens when both parents turn up to a parent-teacher interview or what happens if they both come to the school fight or to the child's performance at the school play or on a football game on a Saturday morning, the soccer game, when they're both there? If the, if the child is aware of the conflict and is being dragged into that conflict and being invited to participate in that choosing of sides, then that creates all of those issues that can manifest much later in life too and that can involve... uh, damaged relationships with their parents and um, that inability to communicate. And sometimes it's just easier not to maintain a relationship with their other parent because the conflict that it exposes them to is far too great. And uh, from what I understand, Steve, uh, children usually want to have a good relationship with both parents. So when they're forced to make a choice, Mm. and there might be a whole lot of different choices they make, but when they are forced to make these choices, uh, it can be from the parent perspective to say that they've been rejected by their child. Mm. And that can affect the relationship with the child as the child desperately does want to have relationship with both parents, but they're drawn into making choices which reflect badly upon them uh, in the eyes of their parents. Yes, that's right. And that, that, um, that can create a whole lot of tension for them in the... If we, if we step back to the, the court process and, and the way the courts resolve it, the courts rely on quite skilled people who deal with those issues as a way of eliciting that information without necessarily asking a child point blank where they want to live or things like that. There's ways in which they can tease those questions out in a child-focused way and in an age-appropriate way so that they can get to the core of what the child's needs might be without causing the child to feel like they're choosing sides. And that's very important. If you think of, um, even if you think of young children in a perfectly intact family, children will have different attachments to their parents and those attachments will change with time. So very young children typically want their mum because they're so dependent upon their mum. As they get older, those attachments move backwards and forwards. And it will also depend on whether they're boys or girls. At various times, little boys will be more drawn to their mum and then they'll be more drawn to their dad and then they'll be more drawn to their mum. That primary attachment moves backwards and forwards and it's the same for little girls but it might be at different ages. And the challenge of course is that in any intact healthy parenting relationship that works quite well because the parent who the child's primarily attached to can devote more of their attention to that child and that enables the child to feel comfortable 
But when parents separate, that primary attachment, who knows where that primary attachment might be for that child when they separate, and um, that creates a whole lot of extra conflict and um, uncertainty for the child. So the important thing in a situation for a court in, in a situation like that is to be able to make sure that the children who want to be able to maintain that relationship with their parent, children have a right to know and be cared for by each of their parents. It's one of the fundamental um, propositions under the Family Law Act is that they have a right to know and be cared for by their parents, subject to safety issues. How do you do that? How do you actually make sure that the child is comfortable talking to the other parent about wanting to spend a bit of extra time with dad or a bit of extra time with mum, things like that? So let's come back to that very basic question. And uh, from what I'm thinking, uh, there isn't an easy answer to this, but uh, is there a guideline that the court uses? How old do the children have to be before they can choose where they live when there's a separation? I'll give you a lawyer's answer, and that is it depends. It depends. It depends. So um, in terms of the way the court approaches it, I said before that rather than people running off to court and asking a court to do it, they really should say, what's in our children's best interests. Fortunately, that's the first question that the court asks as well. Okay, what is in the best interests of these particular children? And there's some primary considerations like the the benefit of children having a meaningful relationship with both of their parents and, and the need to protect them from harm. But then there's a whole range of additional considerations. And one of those additional considerations are the views that the children might express and the weight that should be attached to those views. Now, that the weight that should be attached might depend on their age, or it might depend on their level of maturity. So the example that I often give to um, to people who have come into my office and, and ask that same question is to say, well, if you have a, a couple who have separated and they have a little boy who's nine and his parents have just separated and he's being asked question along, questions along the lines of what might be involved in living in, in separated households, his entire frame of reference has been parents who were together. So he's not really going to understand what it means to live in two separate households. He might have some friends at school who are going through it, but his experience has never been two two separate households. But if you have a couple who's uh, who separated when their child was two, and he's now nine, and they've come into conflict over something and the, and the amount of time that the child should spend with each parent, that nine-year-old child has a much better appreciation for what it means to live in two separate households because most of his memory is going to have been in two separate households. So it's not so much that his age carries the day, but his level of maturity or his understanding of what it is to be in those two separate households is is much more informed. It's a similar kind of situation with age, though, because as kids get older, they tend to be able to distinguish more between their own views and the views of their parents. And there's no there's no set age limit in the Family Law Act that says... This is when kids get to choose their views. Technically, a court can make an order until they're 18. There's a great case that was recently decided along those lines. But um, when children start to approach their teenage years, they get a much better appreciation for what it might be like. And the fact is, as kids hit their teenage years, they start doing lots of things on weekends, like lots of sport commitments as they start getting to you know late 14, 14 and three quarters. I think is when you can start working. 15-year-olds, they start getting part-time jobs. All of that has to feed into the mix. Steve, is there any sort of statistical 
uh, idea about whether when divorces happen, and I'm sure it's, uh, it, you know, obviously there's different scenarios, uh, but are most children in uh, separated families uh, younger or is it happening in their teenage years? A- any ideas? And uh, is it like the majority of children are under 10 or uh, or the majority of children over 10? How do you, how do you uh, assess uh, where children are at when these things are typically happening uh, with breaking down families. Look, if you if you use fairly basic statistics, it's more often when the children are quite young. And what I say when I say basic statistics, I mean that on average relationships are seven to eight years in Australia, which means that typically the children are, are going to be fairly young, leave a couple of years without kids, and then a couple of years with kids. So they tend to be fairly young. But of course, people will separate very shortly after forming a relationship. Some people have had children together and never been in a relationship. Some people have been married for a long time and have almost adult children or a mixture of adult and um, children under 18. But in terms of the the resources of the court and family lawyers, they're primarily devoted to, to people with younger children because people with teenage children tend to take the children's views into account a little bit more and and therefore work out arrangements that they think are going to pragmatically work because the kids won't get in cars if, if they're not happy with it or they, they will just chuck such tantrums and carry on like pork chops if um, they don't want to be there. So it tends to be with younger children that more of the lawyer's time and the court's time and psychologist's time is spent. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. This is 2020. On Vision Christian Radio. Good to have you along with us. It is the Tuesday edition of 2020. We are talking about family law today, asking that question, how old do the children have to be before they can choose where they live? And, of course, talking about all sorts of aspects when it comes to family law, our special guest is Steve Potts, family lawyer, and our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. Steve, let's take a call from Dot in Adelaide. Hello, Dot. Welcome along to... 2020. Hi, I've got a question, but it's not so much about where a child could live, but my question is, um, what does a grandparent have a right to access to children? Okay, Steve. Yeah, great. Um, Sorry, Doc, cut you off. to express a little bit further is that um, when one of the, like my child, my daughter passed away and now I'm not allowed to see my grandchild. Okay. Dot, um, it's a great question, and let me give you some, some comfort. Grandparents are one of the specific groups of people who have standing under the Family Law Act commence proceedings to be able to spend time with children. So obviously um, parents can commence proceedings. In very limited circumstances, children can, and grandparents are the other specifically named group of people who can commence proceedings. So what that means is you actually have a right to be able to appear in front of a court and ask for orders about the time that you might spend with your grandchild. Mm-hmm. Um, there are anybody, in fact, who's concerned with the care, welfare and development of children can make an application to the court, but grandparents uh, are specifically named. But before you rush off to court, there's a whole range of options that are available. Do you know where your grandchild lives? Yes, I do. I've, and I just thought I'd let you know, I have sat in the lawyer's office. Mm-hmm. And I was sort of overwhelmed thinking that um, I'm not to do this at the moment. This was not the right time at the moment. Mm -hmm. And I just sort of felt God knows where he is. 
and I just sort of feel that by chasing after him, I did. I was probably more fearful, but I thought I don't need this, my grandson's father to put anything negative out there. Sure. And by leaving it all quiet and calm, I thought it was the best for my grandson at this stage. Sure. One of the things, um, whether it be you or anybody else who's listening who's who's experiencing a similar kind of situation, it can be very challenging because you're trying to provide stability for your grandchild. I can understand that. And um, it's also difficult when it's because your own child has passed away. I've acted in a number of matters where that's been the, the situation. Um there are mediation organisations that are out there that enable grandparents to commence those kinds of discussions about the time that they might spend with their grandchildren. And they are usually the best place to start because they're much less confrontational than making an application to the court. But um, the importance of grandparents shouldn't be underestimated. They're fantastic um, for children to be able to spend time with their wider family, and particularly in a situation, for example, if your daughter's passed away, then your grandchild's connection with um, with um, your daughter and your side of the family is really going to be dependent upon um, maintaining that kind of a relationship with you, and that's that's going to be fundamental to that child's identity growing up. And I think that. Um, while I understand why you might be hesitant to rush into it at the moment, it's certainly something that you can pursue and you can do it in less adversarial ways like mediation before heading off to court. Is, is there a disadvantage by just standing back and waiting to see what's going to, how things are panning out? The, the, the real disadvantage is that the longer you leave things and no contact is occurring, the more difficult it is to start things in the future because... There's the child might have um, lost some of that connection or there might need to be a period of re-establishing that relationship. That's particularly so if children are quite young. Um, as children get older, they have a better ability to remember wider family connections, but very young children won't necessarily remember if that period of time drags on too long. And even if, the, if the, um, my grandchild is in contact with um, my daughter's siblings, so to speak... Well, that's 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 good and that's helpful as well because it means mm. that you're there's the connection still being maintained with the maternal side of the family, which is good. Um, yeah. And it might be that you can maintain some uh, contact there as well through those through your other daughters. Mm. Dot, thank you so much for calling in and and putting that scenario to our special guest today. Uh, Dot from Adelaide, great to hear from you. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. You might have your own question. You might have a scenario you'd like to run past our family lawyer. Uh, 1-800-316-316 is our number. Uh, Before we take any more calls, uh, let's just come back to a case that the High Court dealt with recently, Stephen, uh, where two teenage boys aged 15 and 17 were at the centre of the sorts of things we've been talking about today. How does that story unfold? It's a really interesting case, Neil, actually. Um, the, the High Court gave its decision last year, but it didn't tell us why until only about a month ago. So uh, long and the short of it is there are two boys, they were almost 15 and almost 17. And if you came into a family lawyer's office and said, I've got a 15 and 17-year-old boy and where might they live? Most family lawyers are going to say to you, wherever they're you know, wherever they want to because they're at an age where they can vote with their feet. 
What happened in this case, though, was that the father took them to New York under the guise of having a holiday with them. And he'd been gone about um, two weeks. And he wrote to uh, mum and said, the boys have decided they want to live here in New York, which is hardly surprising. It's probably much more exciting. And uh, one gets the impression that the father was financially very well-to-do and they were getting everything that they wanted in New York. And so the mother um, had commenced proceedings and sought to have the children returned to Australia and the court made some orders. The father wasn't happy with it, so he appealed it to the family, the full court of the family court and he was unsuccessful there. And so obviously he still had too much money, so he decided to appeal it again to the high court. And the high court in that case said that it was appropriate that the children come back to Australia for the purpose of fulfilling the earliest orders that had been made by the court about getting a proper understanding of their views. Because what had happened was um, the father said, well, I can take them to some psychologist or another report writer here in New York and get their views. And the the court said, well, yes, you could do that, but we're of the view that their views, the children's views, will be contrived. They're so influenced by dad that we're not going to get a true impression of what they really uh, think and how they feel about the situation. And it was not just that there was these two boys aged 15 and 17. There was also a girl who'd remained living in Australia who was 12, and she'd remained living with mum. So you have this situation where the siblings have been split, where the daughter's got a great relationship with mum, where the boys have got a bit of a fractured relationship with mum, but a great relationship with dad, and dad's got the money and the resources to say, well, I'm just going to give them whatever they want and I'm going to keep them here in America and I don't care what the Family Court of Australia says, I'm, I'm doing what I like. So really interesting scenario because those children, those boys would be at an age where most people would think their views will carry the day. And what the court said is, I'm not going to attach that much weight to their views until I've got them back in Australia with somebody independent telling me what their views are. Because yes, they want to live with dad, but they haven't given any intention to what that might mean for separation from their mum, separation from their sister, and all of the extra family dynamics that go with that. And just in the lead up to news in just a a few moments, but the idea of having lots of money, uh, being able to afford uh, the, the better lawyer perhaps, uh, does that often carry a lot of weight when it comes to who gets uh, the the rights to their children? Uh, having lots of money does that make a big difference? Um, it, yes and no. What tends to be most helpful in cases, the successful outcomes come through preparation. The more money you spend preparing a case, typically the better your outcome. Not guaranteed though, but the framework of the Family Law Act makes no um, judgments based on people's income. Or wealth. Uh, Steve, let's continue to take some calls and thanks for those uh, who are waiting on the line for being patient. We'll get through these as quickly as we can, but let's take a call from John in Western Australia. Hello, John. Welcome along. Welcome. John, what are your thoughts? Uh, do you have, what's your question or do you have a scenario you'd yeah, like to run by, Steve? Uh, about the grand, grandparents' um, rights to see their granddaughter. Yeah, fire away, John. And... Um, we haven't seen them, seen the granddaughter for four months, mm-hmm. uh, four years, I mean. Okay. Uh, the only time we saw her when she was a month old, and um, the mother stopped us four years. We haven't seen her for four years. Mm-hmm. And um, going to her lawyer that we're not allowed to talk to the daughter, you know, what what is it the grandparents' right? Yeah. What is their right? So, 
like I suggested to uh, Dot from Adelaide, the best place to start would be to contact a mediation organisation and at least start the dialogue because um, the unless there's a specific order that restrains you from making contact with your daughter, then you're free to contact a mediation organisation and get them to start the ball rolling, to start that dialogue to work out whether there can be a, a way of negotiating an arrangement because um, a mediator will be able to start that discussion with either a you can be in the same room, you can be in separate rooms. They can start to tease out some of the issues even before you arrive. They'll do an intake session with each of you to try and work out what the nature of the dispute is so that they can then get to the core issue of, okay, how do we start uh, restoring a relationship here between you and your grandchild? If you are unsuccessful at a mediation, then the option of court is always there, but courts don't like people just rushing off and commencing proceedings without having first gone through the mediation process. So that's the very first thing to do. Um, depending on the complexity of the issues that have led to that situation, sometimes it might be appropriate to start with using a family lawyer as a mediator. There are um, family lawyers throughout Australia who are recognised as mediators under a national accreditation program. There are also other people who are trained mediators but not necessarily family lawyers and the advantage of using organisations like that is that they're cheaper but um, they won't necessarily have the same family law background. But one of the things that I could suggest is if you have um, internet access, the, the federal government has a, an organisation or a program called the Family Relationship Centres. In each state of Australia they um, are run by different organisations who have won the, the contracts at tender. But if you search for um, familyrelationships.gov.au and put in your postcode, it will give you some results of who are the closest mediation organisations and then just give them, a, give them a call and say, I'm estranged from my daughter and I'm estranged from my grandchild, but I would like to be able to um, commence some kind of discussion. That's probably the best place to start. John from WA, I hope that's been helpful and thank you so much for your call today. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call from Stephen in Blackwood in Queensland. Hello, Stephen. Welcome along to 2020. Good morning. Stephen, what are your thoughts? Um, I've just got a, I've got a bit of a question and a scenario for Steve. Yep, fire away. Um, I've, I've had a... I've been paying child support up until my, my supposed son was 18 he's now 22 mm -hmm. i haven't seen my son since he was seven because mm -hmm. they packed up and left queensland and went to wa when he was about seven yes now i've only just been told recently by child support by someone who works for there um that i can apply for an s106 and an s107 order and i was just wondering is it too late to do that or is it never too late because i really haven't had any relationship with my supposed son the relationship was only for a very short time. Mm. We were never married or anything like that. And then I was basically given a form to sign and said, hey, look, if you want to be recognised as a father, sign this bit of paperwork, which I did, and not realising that it was child support. But then they never really gave me a chance to um, question what I signed. So yeah. I basically paid out for 18 years and then was told about this orders I can do now. So the question is, is it too is late or... Short, or am I able to still do something? Sorry, yeah, short answer is possibly, but um, can I just ask a quick question? The yeah, um, the 
child support assessment that's in, or was in place, is it still active? Do you still owe any money on it or is it all being no, paid out? No, it's all being paid out. Okay. Um, because you've caught me at a bit of a disadvantage because I'm trying to remember specifically which way around sections 106 and 107 of the Child Support Assessment Act work. I, my recollection is there in relation to uh, orders about I, declarations of parentage. I, I believe the S106 order is to do with DNA testing. Yeah. And an S107 order is for paying, paying, getting retribution back from or whatever I've paid out, I get back. Yeah, there are there are very limited circumstances where uh, when it can happen. Um, I recall there's a case from some years ago where a fellow took that issue to the High Court and was unsuccessful. Um, off the top of my head, Stephen, I, I can't answer that question for you because it okay. is fairly complex. But if if you're happy to give your details to John, I can give you a call back a little bit later in the day once I've had an opportunity to look that up for you, if you like. Because yeah, that's not a problem. That'd yeah, be a good thing. Usually, because once it's, it's I've only basically not worried about chasing all this stuff because my family have said, "Oh, look, no, don't rock the boat. Just mm. leave everything. Just pay the money." But if he's if he's not, because you know, he, my, her brother let it slip that she was in a previous relationship and that's where she was apparently pregnant from. So I was sort of like Johnny on the spot, and um, yeah, was sort of taken for a, a bit of a ride. So and and I, I guess the disadvantage for you, Stephen, is that. Um, at the, given the age of your son, DNA testing was not as common back then as it no. is now, whereas I've acted in quite a lot of matters over the recent years where people have wanted to have DNA testing for that ex- exact reason because they say, well, hang on a minute, I don't actually know whether I'm the parent of this child. And having a test done early on establishes that and makes makes it a lot, it's a lot easier to be correctly identified as a parent or not a parent and therefore your child support may not need to be paid um, than it is after years of having paid child support. Okay, uh, Stephen, we'll put you on hold and you can give your details to John and uh, we'll continue to take some calls. Uh, 1-800-316-316. If you'd like to participate in our conversation today, we are talking about family law issues. Our special guest is Steve Potts, family lawyer. Let's take a call from Trish in WA. Hello, Trish. Welcome along to 2020. Hi, Neil. Hi, Steve. Um I'm just when I separated, um, I took advice from the councillors to leave my home due to the domestic violence. But so I rented a house within walking distance from my home. So my five children were there with their father. But before I left, I made sure I went to mediation to sort out some plan, and um, which said that the children could come to me half the week mm-hmm. and you know for to stay the night and everything. But um, that mediator also told us that. From the age of 12, children can decide. And I've had four lawyers since then and no one's been able to help me with any access and um, they've always told me that 12 was the age. So my ex-husband took that as gospel and he went. He tells the children everything. So he said that to them and, and they he sort of coerced them to say that, well, you can choose. So even the 5-year-old and the 8-year-old and the 11-year-old wanted to choose. I, they were 5, 8, 11, 12 and 14 at the time of separation. And so in the end, I had to virtually give them, you know, that that choice, even though it, you know, nearly, nearly killed me. Mm. Um, so I, I did the mediation twice. They still couldn't help me. Um, he pulled them out of their schools without my consent and sent the children over to me to tell me he didn't ever tell me, and the lawyers just no no lawyers helped me, and now 
the next thing is the house and because he's saying he's the prime carer that he should have the house. So I'm left with still on the back foot four years later trying to build a relationship with my children, trying to see them um, renting a home that I can't afford and so he's virtually got all the children and now wants the house and, you know, I just don't know where to turn anymore and oh, but I have turned to God and that that's kept me going but uh yeah you hear different scenarios about yeah. when they can choose and anyway yeah so um one of the challenges there of course is that um when it comes to what the law says and what practically happens there can be very two different very uh, very different outcomes so um whoever has said to you that when children are 12 they can choose where they live is just plainly wrong at law because there's no law that says that. But um, as we were talking before, we talked about practically what happens, and that's as kids uh, start to hit their teenage years, more weight is attached to their views, and uh, as they get into their teenage years, courts tend to give more emphasis to their views. And then, of course, when you've got children who are on in a family with a fairly broad age spread, so you might have some that are 12 or 15 or 16 and you have others that are younger, the court's then left in a situation where some of the older children might be expressing views that they don't want to spend as much time and the younger ones then say, well, I don't want to be separated from my parents and my siblings, so they tend to stay where the older siblings go and that's probably practically what's been part of the challenge that you've had to deal with is that the older children have been given the choice by their father and so they've perhaps to avoid conflict with him um, said that they want to spend more time with him but then that leaves the younger children in a situation where they don't want to be away from their older siblings. So that's a very difficult uh, situation. The family court, if it was to intervene in a situation like that and was asked for orders, would want to understand why it is that the children are expressing those kinds of views and are those views independently formed or are they being either coerced or are they being influenced by um, the father? And how much weight really should be placed on their views? Because as Neil and I were talking before, there's that, that recent decision with the 15 and 17-year-old uh, boys where the court said, yes, they might be expressing that view, but we're not really going to put any weight on it. The, the difficulty, though, is that you've got to commence proceedings usually to get that information in front of a judge because although there are methods of going through that process cooperatively, if one parent doesn't want to engage in it, and in this case if the father doesn't want to engage in investigating that, then that's going to leave you with little option but to commence court proceedings. And if, Sorry, Neil, just um, one other thing I would say is uh, this, this really illustrates the difficulty that we talked about before where children are being drawn directly into the conflict and instead of being able to be kids and just have that interaction and, and even living close to mum and being able to go backwards and forwards between parents' homes, they're being drawn into the conflict by the father's action in, in that situation. Oh, Trish from WA, thank you so much for your call and uh, for sharing your heart on that and just illustrates, doesn't it, just how complex these things can be. Trish from WA, thanks for your call. Uh, we are taking calls on one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. Time is fleeting, but let's hear from Corey in Brisbane. Hello, Corey. Welcome along. Hey, how you going? Very well, Corey. What are your thoughts? Um, I'm in a bit of a situation. I've been fighting a losing battle for about five years. Um, I'm a father, and my son's about nine now, but over the years, 
uh, my ex-girlfriend's sort of been coming in and out of my life with him. Um, there's been times where she's tried to use my child as bait to try and draw me away from the things of God. Uh, I went through the legal system for the last five years and I haven't been able to win anything through the public system of trying to get access or visitation with my son. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I had a cousin. He's very unreachable at some times, but he, he's in the law department. Um, I ended up getting a certificate of a mediation. She wouldn't come to a party with uh, legal aid in the part of coming to an agreement where we can both benefit with my child. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I don't know what sort of procedure I've got to do now, but um, over the years I've got to the point where I've hit depression a few times, knowing that I've got a child out there and he doesn't know his dad. Yep. Um, I'm just wondering what sort of advice would you give to uh, a parent that cares for his child? And It's sort of hard to um, go through the, the the public system. Yeah. So, Corey, I take it's, it's it's like I'm hitting I'm hitting a brick wall with the public system. Sure, and so, it's like now because I'm not eligible for legal aid assistance because I'm at work, mm-hmm. I'm earning too much income. Yep. But you know, and you know, I can't exactly go out and pay, you know, two three hundred dollars an hour to pay a lawyer to go out and do that sort of thing, you know, and. Yeah, I've just sort of I've hit a rock wall with everything. Sure. So I take it from what you've said, Corey, that you've not previously been to court, but you have tried through the mediation options or through a legal aid yes. family law conference. Yes. And Mum didn't come to that, so you got your certificate. I got my certificate. Okay. Yes. So what that certificate means is that you're now able to make an application to the court, and yep. the court will then give it a date. So yep. what I would suggest to you is you don't have to have a lawyer to go to court. As a family lawyer, I always tell people you should have a lawyer, but you don't actually have It's not a legal requirement that you need to have a lawyer there with you when you make your application to the court. But what needs to happen is if you were to file your application with the court, there's, you, I think you said you're in Queensland? I am. Yeah, but so. The other, the other, sorry, the other problem I had, that was probably issued about a year ago. Okay, so there's a time limit on them. They, they they last for 12 months. If that 12 months has already passed, you'll have to do it again. If the time limit hasn't passed, you need yep. to file really soon. Okay, you need to file before that 12-month time limit what experience. Would, what would happen now with the legal, legal aid issue? So that's, I went through the whole procedure through legal aid, mm-hmm. but also with my, my, obviously one of my family, but I can't get a hold of it at the moment, but... Um, do I have to go through that whole procedure again through legal aid or is there anywhere else I can go through? Or, um, Well, if you've got the certificate and the 12 months hasn't expired, you can yep. go straight to a lawyer and ask a lawyer to help you prepare the documents and lodge them with the court or you yep. can prepare the documents yourself and lodge them with the court. So if you're in, are you in the southeast Queensland area? Brisbane, yeah. Brisbane, yeah, okay. So, yep. yep, so the court is in Brisbane just uh, on the river there on North Quay. The registry yep. is there. You can either do it by going and dropping the documents off at the court there or you can do it online through the court's online portal. There's a few yep. documents that you need to file. One of them is the application that tells the court who you are and the orders that you'd like the court to make. And then the other document is your affidavit, which is your sworn statement of the evidence. So that would be a bit of a history of what's gone on, the amount of care that you've yep. been involved in historically and how, the attempts that you've made to be able to spend time uh, with your son. And yep. then... Um, once those documents are lodged with the court, then uh, you need to serve a copy on the mother, and it would usually be given 
a date for a hearing in front of a judge, usually yep. two and a half to three months later. Now, okay. in certain in circumstances where you haven't spent much time, the, one of the first things the court's going to say is, what extra information do I need before I start making decisions about the time that this child spends uh, with dad? And so yep. that might be through a report by a psychologist or a social worker at the court. Um, if you okay. if you don't have um, if you haven't got a lawyer, uh, the courts usually work on the presumption that if you you can if you can afford a lawyer, you can pay for a private psychologist. If you don't can't afford a lawyer, then they'll give you one of their own in house psychologists or social workers. Now and, the, the other issue I had, um, she lives in New South Wales. Mm-hmm. Um, the information that we gathered together, she might have because over the past five years, you know, uh, we've sent documentation to her address and that, and um, the assumption was that she might have changed his name also. Yeah, well... So you're, there's, you're, another, there's another problem there. Yeah, well, as long as you file the proceedings um, and you know, give him the name that you know that he's known by, then yep. information will probably come out over time if his name has been changed. Okay. But, but the first thing to do would be to make that application. The court will then... Uh, arrange for that social worker to do some interviews and that will then yep. start the process. Don't expect that you're going to jump straight into a, a a big regime of regular contact with your child. The courts usually start gently, you know, softly, softly approach. But the yep. important thing is to get the ball rolling so that you can start developing that relationship with your child because once that relationship develops, then it can be looked at again by a social worker and then the court can start to make more informed decisions about what's going to be in your child's best interests. It just it just it kills me inside, you know, knowing that I'm a father of a child and you know, uh the last time I'm seeing him he was five, he's nine now and mm. he um you know, my my ex girlfriend at the time, she's moved on and had three kids to all different fathers and and every guy that's been in her life, she's got him to call them dad, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm the biological father and it it kills a parent inside knowing you've got a child and you have no relationship with him, you know? Yeah, and that's why I say if you've tried those mediation avenues, um, that's why we have courts. They're the next way of actually bringing that issue to a head. Well, Corey from Brisbane, thanks so much for your call, and we won't be able to take any more calls. Thanks to everyone who uh, waited patiently uh, in line, and uh, I know that today uh, some of that advice, uh, some of that encouragement will be just invaluable to listeners. And for those who didn't call, I'm sure you know that there are scenarios that are happening either within your own family or in your broader community and even attached to your local church that will have benefited from some of those uh, issues that have been raised today. Uh, Thank you so much to uh, Corey from Brisbane for your call. And uh, just as we we wrap things together here, and uh, I'm not sure there's too many loose ends to, to get, but we've been talking about children and their value in this process. And I imagine that even while we're talking about marriages breaking down, there are so many children who are part of de facto relationships. And and I'm wondering, just as we just draw things together here, I mean, people are going through uh, marriage breakdowns, but also where there's de factos yep. and those break up. Some of these sorts of legal things are are, are just as relevant for de facto as yeah. they are for marriage. Absolutely. The Family Law Act makes no distinction between the way it makes decisions about children in married from married relationships and children from de facto relationships. The law is the same. And so whether a child's parents have been married or not, the court still says, what is in this child's best interests? How can I make an order or arrangements that are going to be in this child's best interests? 
And if there's one thing I could say to people, um, you don't have to go to court to work out what a child's best interests is or are. Um, there's a whole range. We talked about the mediation organisations. Some of those organisations run what are called child-inclusive mediations. So they have a social worker who meets separately with the child before the parents get together. And then that social worker gives a bit of feedback at the mediation session. That's a fantastic way of getting some views without the child feeling like they're being quizzed. And if a court can order people to go and have a family report done by a psychologist, people can go and agree to do that themselves. And my experience has been the most successful parenting outcomes are parents who say, okay, we might have different views about what's in our child's best interests, but we don't want to go and spend a fortune at court about it. Why don't we skip all of those first steps and go straight to what the court would do anyway, which is to say, let's engage a private psychologist or social worker who's someone who's got experience talking to kids, teasing these issues out, helping us make some decisions about what's best for our kids. Why don't we all go and see that person as a family, get their report, and then have a mediation with an informed understanding of our personal dynamics, our family dynamics, what's important for our kids, and make some informed choices rather than just going in there and fighting over our kids like they're a piece of property. Well, some good advice, and we have run out of time, but I want to say uh, thank you so much for uh, for making your uh, your knowledge available to our listeners today. Steve Potts. Uh, Steve is a accredited specialist in family law, the managing director of Newman and Turner Lawyers in Brisbane. That's Newman, N-E-U-M-A-N-N, and Turner, T-U-R-N-O-U-R. And uh, you can simply Google Newman and Turner to uh, to be able to find Steve. Is, is a particular website? Yeah, NT Lawyers. NT Lawyers. That makes it nice and easy, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, Steve, great advice today. Thanks so much for taking some time to uh, share your thoughts and your heart uh, with our listeners today on 2020. It's good to be here. Thanks, Neil. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.